When I showed up at Asbury Theological Seminary in 1992, I already had a BA and an MA in Biblical Studies. And so my MDiv, Master of Divinity coursework, had strange classes. I had one class, Karen, called Hell, the Logic of Damnation. I had, <laughs> I had another class on the philosophy of Hegel. I'm convinced the guy just did drugs and then wrote whatever he saw. <laughs> okay? And so I was, to make matters worse, I was the only MDiv student to be working on a master's thesis. So the way it works in seminaries is THM students do the theses, MDiv students don't. But I was the one MDiv student who was working on a research thesis. And so I took a three credit hour course called Thesis uh, my last year of seminary because I needed the time to research and write. And the last day of class, or the last day of classes, the last week of classes rather, on Monday I got a letter from the registrar. This is before email and before schools would communicate with students by email. And so I got a letter on Monday, the last week of classes, Dear Mr. Vanderpool, since you've taken thesis for three credit hours, you will be submitting your thesis on Friday. I had one chapter done. I had all the research done. And I started hyperventilating and I started panicking and I talked to Jenny and then I panicked more. And then I went to the registrar and the registrar said, we don't care how you did things at Wheaton College. This is how we do things at Asbury. When you take the three credit hour course called thesis, that's when you turn in your thesis. I'm sorry, I can't help you. And so I called, I called a, a guy who was mentoring me, Dr. Ken Kinghorn, because my research was in early American Methodism and he loved early American Methodism. And so he kind of took a shining to me. Thank God Dr. Kinghorn was also something else. He was the dean. <laughs> and I laid this story out for Dr. Kinghorn. What am I going to do? <laughs> so on Wednesday of that last week of class, I got a new letter from the registrar. Dear Mr. Vanderpool, just want to let you know, hey, you're doing a thesis. So anytime in the next two years... <laughs> Just let us know when you're ready to submit and defend. <laughs> and we'll, okay? So, Dr. Kinghorn, for me, was a mediator. He was an advocate, a broker. He was someone who could unlock heaven and earth for some poor student who did something wrong. Now, in the Middle East, they still operate this way. So, I've only been to Turkey. That's the closest place I've been to the Middle East. But I have friends who live in the Middle East, and they tell me that traffic accidents are different. So when we have, I, I take a daughter to high school, so I'm always in the school lane. And every morning, somebody's in a fender bender. Boom, oops. So the two drivers get out. They're on their phones. And right, there's some plastic and broken headlights or brake lights on the floor that needs to, or road that needs to be swept up. But what do you do in America? You keep driving on. That's what you do. They're okay. They're fine. You keep driving. In the Middle East, that's not how it works at all. In the Middle East, traffic in all directions stops. Everyone gets out of their car and comes to the scene of the accident. Do I know either of the drivers? Because if I do, I now have a responsibility. Because I might also know someone in the police department or the hospital 
or a lawyer. And so I'm trying to make sure that my friend who's now been in an accident is well cared for and has been advocated for and doesn't get into trouble unnecessarily. We don't operate that way in the United States. We have this idea of mediator, middleman, but we kind of despise it, right? Toyota is telling you, buy direct from toyota.com, cut out the dealer, cut out the middleman. You're being told, buy things from the factory floor. Don't worry about the middleman. But here's the thing, team generations, sometimes you need a middleman. Jenny and I just finished a home renovation project. The only renovation we've ever done in the 30 some years we've been married. Oh, Lord, thank you. <laughs> that was gratitude that it's done and it will never happen again. So we decided to do this on the other side of the pandemic. I don't know if you've heard, but Team America is having some supply chain issues. The stove, the cooktop that we have in our home, do you know why we have that cooktop? It's not the one Jenny wanted. It wasn't in the top five or 10 cooktops that Jenny wanted. It's the one cooktop that the Lowe's distribution center that serves 100 stores in Indiana, Ohio, and Kentucky had on the floor. That's the cooktop we have. So when it came time to order the front door, I went in and I was told, Mr. Vanderpool, that's great. Just pick it out. And in 12 to 14 months, we'll deliver you your door. I was having flashbacks to the stories that Ronald Reagan would tell about communism in the 1980s. And I was like, where am I living? And so the guy doing all this work, he was going to be done in three months. So I was in a pickle. What am I going to do? So on a fluke, I went to Stratton Lumber here in town. And as it turns out, the guy, the door guy at Stratton Lumber knows the uh, inventory lady for all of Larson Door Company. So he says to Jenny and me here, look through this catalog, narrow it down to about 10 choices, and then come back and see me. So we did. We narrowed it down. We had about eight different doors selected. We go in. He calls the woman on the phone, an item by item number. So... Do you have uh, item number 4759? Nope, nope. Uh, do you have item number 4782? You do. That's on the floor right now. Do you have the side lights? Ship it today. Boom. Problem solved, right? So here's what I want you to know. There are going to be times in your life where you need the door guy from Stratton Lumber. There are going to be times in your life where you need Dr. Ken Kinghorn, Dean of Asbury Theological Seminary. There are going to be times in your life where you need a mediator. Now, I've been teaching from the book of Esther, and Esther isn't just a queen. Esther is a mediator. And so I want to continue her story today in the book of Esther, chapters 3 and 4. But by way of reminder for those of you who are just hopping in today, the book of Esther starts out with a 180-day celebration conducted by King Xerxes, the king of Persia. And for 180 days, he displays his wealth and power before the military officers and noble families of Persia. And at the culmination of this event, he summons his queen because he wants everybody to see not only is he the most powerful man in the world, not only is he the richest man in the world, but he also has the most beautiful woman in the world. And again, it's all about possessions, okay? And so the, the, the shocking thing that happens is that his queen refuses. She doesn't come. Oh, 
So they institute this context, contest to choose another queen. And young Esther, a young Jewish woman, is selected because she's the most beautiful and she pleases Xerxes in the bedroom. Okay, so this isn't just a beauty contest. This is also sexual exploitation, okay? And that's where we pick things up in chapter three, but there's one little incident I need to cue you in on, and that's the fact that Esther's uncle, Mordecai, when, she, when Esther became queen, Mordecai went to work in the palace as one of the many people employed by the palace. And while they're working, one day he overheard some people talking about killing King Xerxes. He reports it to the king's officials. The men are arrested and executed. Now, you would think that Mordecai would get promoted or rewarded, but instead, he's overlooked. And that's where we pick things up in chapter 3. Esther chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Sometime later, King Xerxes promoted Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, over all the other nobles making him the most powerful official in the empire. All the king's officials would bow down before Haman to show him respect whenever he passed by, for so the king had commanded. But Mordecai, Esther's uncle, refused to bow down or show him respect. Now, Haman is named prime minister of Persia, and this man demands respect. And everyone pays respect except, guess who? Mordecai, Esther's uncle and the man who raised her after her parents had died. So what's going on? Why doesn't Mordecai bow? Well, it's this word Agagite. Agagite is a root of Amalekites, and Amalekites and Israelites, bad blood. Lots of bad blood. In the sense of, I will never bow to a Vikings fan, a Packers fan, <laughs> right? UK all the way, right? So there's bad blood between these people. So much so that in the first century when Jesus is teaching and healing, the Jews have a nickname, a name that they call the Romans. And do you know what they call the Romans? Agagites. Hey, the Agagites are mustering troops tonight. Be careful out there. It's a word used for enemies of God's people. So here's what happens. Haman doesn't notice that one guy isn't bowing. The other palace people do. So they pull Mordecai aside. Hey, come on, get with the program. All you have to do, it's a little neck thing. Let us show you how. This is not hard. Okay, what is the deal? And when they figure out that he's not going to bend, he's not going to bow, they then go to Haman. Hey, boss, you... You've noticed, right? Like, eh, we're all doing the genuflect thing, but Mordecai over there, he's not right. You see this, don't you? You know, palace being helpful people that they are. And so Haman notices that Mordecai doesn't bow. That's verse five. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not bow down or show him respect, he was filled with rage. He had learned of Mordecai's nationality, so he decided it was not enough to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Instead, he looked for a way to destroy all the Jews throughout the entire empire of Xerxes. You and I live in America, and people in power have power, but not like they had in the ancient world. In the ancient world, if you had power, 
it was life and death. Don't like somebody? Off we say head. <laughs> and that's the way things rolled, literally, okay? And so, and so, <laughs> that's free. And so, <laughs> and so, Haman is so incensed, he's so angry that it's not just Mordecai who has to pay. It's everybody who's also like Mordecai. It's genocide, right? A form of genocide. And so Haman approaches the king and asks for an edict to this effect. And that's Esther chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Then Haman approached King Xerxes and said, there's a certain race of people scattered throughout the provinces of your empire who, who keep themselves separate from everyone else. Their laws are... They're different from those of other people, and they refuse to obey the laws of the king. So it's not in the interest to the, for the king to let them live. So if it please the king, issue a decree that they be destroyed, and I'll give 10,000 large sacks of silver to the government administrators to be deposited in the royal treasury. Haman doesn't name the Jews, and Xerxes doesn't ask who they are. Haman offers the equivalent of 60% of the king's intake on an annual basis through taxation. This is a large amount to get what he wants. And the two men seal the deal over drinks. That's verse 15. And at the king's command, the decree went out by swift messengers, and it was also proclaimed in the fortress of Susa. And then the king and Haman sat down to drink but the city of Susa fell into confusion. Now, the king's edict sends confusion and, and fear throughout the entire Persian Empire for the Jews who remained, for the Jews who stayed. And so every single town in Persia at the city gate now features Jewish men in sackcloth and ashes, demonstrating their distress and issuing a call to prayer. And that's where we find Mordecai, Esther chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learned all about that had, what had been done, he tore his clothes, put on burlap and ashes, and went out into the city crying with a loud and bitter cry, uh, wail. The Jews have clearly run afoul of some powerful people in Persia, haven't they? And now they are in trouble. And Persian law is going to allow for their slaughter and for everything they have to be taken away. So what do they do? The sackcloth and ashes speaks to prayer. They're praying. But the other thing that they do is they seek a mediator. The Jews of Susa approach Mordecai. Hey, Mordecai, isn't, didn't you raise Esther? Esther, the queen, the queen of the Persian, like, right? You need to help. You need to speak to her. You need to do something. This can't stand. And so Mordecai approaches Queen Esther. And Queen Esther chooses a palace official named Hathak to communicate with Mordecai. And so back and forth and back and forth, these mediators go between Mordecai, Hathak, and Esther. And Esther and Hathak and Mordecai. And back and forth they go. In the ancient world, as it is in the Middle East today, a person serving as a mediator is often referred to as a friend. 
If we're in the city of Dubai and we sit down to dinner and I introduce Mike Setness to you, hey, Mitch, I want you to, I want you to meet Mike. Mike is a friend. It's not like the way we use the word in America where we mean we play Scrabble together. <laughs> it means that Mike is helping me in a substantial and real way. And I'm relying upon Mike's generosity. Mike is a friend. Okay? And so mediators in the ancient world, in the biblical texts, they're fierce advocates for the people for whom they're mediating. In America, right, we want mediators to be what? Neutral, objective, being able to speak the language of both parties. But that's not how it is in the Bible. And that's not how it is in the Middle East today. A mediator is supposed to fiercely advocate for the people that they're representing. And so back and forth and back and forth, these mediators go. And we learn a couple of important things. One is that even the queen of Persia cannot approach the queen without being invited. So the only way you get an audience with the Persian king is if the king asks for you. You don't just show up. And if the king's in a foul mood, remember, it, off with your head, it's bad. So you don't approach the king unless you're invited. And the second thing we learn in the text that Esther tells Hathak to tell Mordecai is, I haven't seen the king in over 30 days. Now, since some of you grew up with um, Sunday evening Disney and G-rated movies, I need to spell this out for you. In the ancient world, a king never sleeps alone. In the ancient world, a king never sleeps alone. So what Esther is telling Hathak to tell Mordecai is, yes, I'm beautiful. Yes, I really rocked his world. But other women from the harem have been with the king these past 30 days, and it's not been me. So she's saying something very important. Namely, I don't have the influence you think I do. Okay? And so that leads to this interchange through the intermediary, Hathak, between Mordecai and Esther. And Mordecai says this, and it includes one of the most famous verses in the Bible. Mordecai sent this reply to Esther. Don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you'll escape when all the other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. And part of what Mordecai is expressing here is real faith. Mordecai knows God's going to keep his promises. God's going to deliver. That's what God does. What Mordecai doesn't know is how God is going to deliver. Maybe it's through Esther. Maybe it's through some other way. He doesn't know yet. And so what he suggests to Esther is, I wonder if all these coincidences the first queen not appearing, the contest, you being chosen queen, me unveiling that assassination temple. I wonder if all those things aren't just coincidences. I wonder if God's been at work in all of those things. I don't know. And so he poses that question to Esther. And Esther's response to him is equally saturated with faith. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, verse 15. Go to gather together all the Jews of Susa, and fast for me. 
Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. And then, though it's against the law, I will go in and see the king. If I must die, I must die. So Mordecai went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. So Esther is demonstrating real faith. It's not her beauty. It's not a night he's going to remember. She will have been fasting three days and have the look of someone who's been fasting for three days. She's relying on God. If there's going to be a solution to this problem, it's going to be God. And of course, all of this points to Jesus. The New Testament tells us, for there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus himself spoke about his mediating role. In the end of John's gospel, he has these weird phrases that we Americans miss. Remember what I told you, I'm going away. But I'll come back to you again. If you really love me, you'd be happy. I'm going to the Father who is greater than I am. Remember the back and forth and back and forth? And he says it again in chapter, six, uh, chapter 16. Yes, I came from the Father into the world, and now I leave the world to return to the Father. Jesus is saying, I know my role here. I'm the mediator. I'm here to save your butt. And it's a good thing that I'm going back to the Father to do the very thing you need me to do, right? And so Jesus is expressing this in the end of John's gospel. Jesus is a mediator in the biblical way, in the ancient way, and not in the way that you and I tend to think of it as just an impartial, objective thing. So I, I want to flesh this out, but before I do, I want to ask a couple of questions. In light of Esther chapter 3 and chapter 4, how common is it for us to dehumanize people we dislike or hate? Remember, when Haman is talking to Xerxes, he doesn't name the Jews, and Xerxes doesn't ask. It's just those people. I'll give you a hint. Social media. There's lots of places. <laughs> there's lots of places where we dehumanize people we don't like or where we, people we hate. And then the second question is, Esther enlists the Jewish community to fast and pray with her. Why is that important? When have you felt the prayer support of the church? When have you asked to pray for someone? What role does prayer play in your faith? And then if I can take this home, the first thing out of what we see in Esther chapters 3 and 4, decide to be part of the solution. Esther doesn't sit on her hands. Esther doesn't say to Mordecai, you know, I just don't feel called. <laughs> she doesn't say that. Cable news, social media, the internet is full of people and pundits who see all the problems, who, who recognize all the injustice, and they comment, well, Bob, in my 30 years of reporting, I've never, you know, boom, and out it goes. It's out there. Everybody knows. People see. The problem is there's not enough people working to actively solve those problems or right those wrongs. So decide to be part of the solution. And then secondly, work for the good where you are. I want to remind you that the kingdom of God is here and now, not just one day pie in the sky. It's here among us. And part of what we do in the name of Jesus and as ambassadors of Jesus is to make things on earth as it is in heaven. 
And so we've been given that opportunity. And if you're in this room today, I got to tell you, just like Esther, you and I are privileged on the world grand scheme of things, the fact that we're Americans and the fact that we're in this room, we're privileged, just like Esther. So use that power, that position, that prosperity, that prestige for good and not evil. And then lastly, put it all on the line for what you believe. There may come a time in your life where like Esther, you're gonna have to put it all on the line. For Jenny and me, that was 2003 when we felt God was asking us to start a church in Nicholasville. And I was a firm no for two years. No, 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 right? And we jumped off a cliff and put it all on the line. Um, if you've got something you believe in, give it your availability, your energy, your passion, and your resources. Again, there are going to be times in your life where you need the door guy from Stratton Lumber, where you need the Dr. Kinghorn, Dean of Everything from Asbury Theological Seminary. There are going to be times in your life where you need that. And I'm going to tell you straight up, you need Jesus as your mediator. Now, here's what I know talking as an American, talking to other Americans. As Americans, none of us really believe or own the fact that we're going to die. Death is always for somebody else. We're the ones that are going to walk away from the car crash. We're going to beat the cancer diagnosis. I can't tell you how many people I've met in life who've gotten a cancer diagnosis that any doctor would say, nope, game, set, match. But they fight. They fight. Because in, it's innate in us in America to believe that we can beat this thing at the end of the day. Um, and so as Americans, we're not really informed to the fact that we're dead men and dead women walking. But that's exactly what Scripture calls us. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says this, you were dead, let me read that again, you were dead, can dead people do anything? Can dead people help themselves? No, they're literally helpless, powerless, unable, like that's the dead, okay? You were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He's the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to be, obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. And by our very nature, we were subjected to God's anger, just like everyone else. Here's the best way that I know to describe Jesus as the mediator for a room full of Americans. And in order to do that, I have to take a page from history. So imagine for a moment that you're a Jew living in Krakow, Poland, and it's 1943, okay? The Nazis have invaded. They're everywhere. They control everything. No one's having bar and bar mitzvah celebrations anymore. In fact, you have a gold star that you have to wear everywhere outside, and so does your wife, and so do your three daughters. And family member, friends, they're starting to disappear. And people are talking. The Gestapo shows up in the night. They're loaded on trains. They're taken God knows where. But you know something really bad is happening because not a single one of them ever come back. A month ago, a guy who operates a factory paraded everybody through town, and they have barracks there in the factory, and they're safe. The Nazis, the Gestapo, they leave all the Jews alone who are working in that factory. 
and you have something that no one else has, the man who is the manager of the floor of the factory for Oscar Schindler happens to be the man who is the godparent for your three daughters. So you reach out and you appeal to him. And you tell him, look, here's my wedding ring. Here's my wife's wedding's ring. Here's everything of value we have. Please, just take my three girls. At the very least, they're your goddaughters. Take them, put them to work. But he tells you, look, I don't make those decisions. It's not my factory, but I'll talk to Herr Schindler. That night, there's a knock on the door. And you see the blood drain out of your wife's face. And you see the look, just the terrified look on your daughter's faces. And with your hand trembling, you open the door. It's not the Gestapo. It's your friend. And he says to you, shh, get your bags, pack whatever you can carry. You can only take what you can carry. Come with me now. Herr Schindler has agreed, all five of you will have jobs in the factory. And in that moment, you're saved. That's the closest thing I can come to describe the saving work of Jesus Christ. What he did on the cross and through the power of his resurrection. For some of you, it's been a long time since you said yes to Jesus. Today, on this Sunday, would be a good day for you to express gratitude again for what he's done. I don't know if you know this, but years later, there was a gathering where the survivors of Schindler's factory got together just to say, thank you, okay? But for some of you, this could be a Sunday of decision. You've been coming to generations, you've been kicking the tires, the whole faith thing. Here's the deal, for all of us who were dead, but have now been raised, for all of us who were dead in our sin, but are now made alive in Christ, it started with a decision. We said yes. We said yes to Jesus.